This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Counter Spy. Con Man Films. Alex Roberts. And a Los Angeles Geomantic Shake-Up. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and not just any old Doritos, 70s Doritos, the unreconstructed, don't mess with them Doritos, because this time, even though I am throwing the game in we are still in shag-carpeted confines. There is still wood paneling on the wall. It is Peter Frampton uh, serving as Dungeon Master screen and all his uh, double-sided DM screen vinyl glory, because we're uh, hurtling back in time to the 70s, uh, at the behest of uh, Patreon Becker SR, who wants us to look at using Counter Spy Magazine in Fall of Delta Green. Now, uh, Counter Spy Magazine existed between uh, 73 and 84. It's called a magazine, but when you look at the PDF archives, you will see that it's really more what we're thinking of uh, these days as a zine. And ironically, uh, in paper form, this is very, very difficult to get a hold of, but it is... Uh, uh, the CIA, which was the number one uh, target of Counterspy magazine, uh, dutifully collected them and put them in its archives and due to freedom of information uh, requests, uh, it has now wound up preserving Counterspy magazine uh, for the annals of history and for the use of uh, game moderators uh, such as ourselves. So, uh, Ken, what else do we need to know before we launch into the game applications about Counterspy Magazine. I mean, one of the things that uh, Counterspy Magazine did was it sort of acted as a clearinghouse back in the day for people who wanted to write articles about the CIA's activities, which in even in 1973 was still kind of a no-no. You weren't supposed to do it. In 1974, of course, Marchetti's book comes out inside uh, the CIA, blows the lid off the agency. Uh, Philip Agee comes out with his book, uh, his tell-all in which he says, I was a CIA agent and I'm going to name names. And uh, there's a giant kerfuffle. And and that sort of puts Counterspy on the map and then sort of gets other people all head up about 
hey, we should document the activities of this nefarious agency that our tax dollars pay for. And uh, many of the documents were of the sort of earnest, I'll bet this is true kind, familiar to all readers of zines everywhere. And some of them, you know, had names and dates and places. And the CIA didn't like comment and say, well, you got us there, pal. Uh, so <laughs> there, it's not uh, so, so much primary sources, but you could consider it uh, primary investigative journalism, certainly uh, for the topic and for the era. So uh, counter spy is sort of all over the map. Some of the things that we're in counter spy are now sort of accepted as true by intelligence historians broadly. Others uh, turn out to have been crazy made up things that maybe were not so much true as uh, wishful thinking. And I'm sure our own uh, zines will, will look just as uh, gallimophorous and amphigorous to uh, intelligence historians of the future who are going to be so busy, uh, I suspect, just so very, very busy. They'll just be laying their little heads down, have a nap. Uh, but Counter Spy goes back to that uh, sort of distant era when there was no Google, there was no internet, there was no looking things up and just sort of explaining what Angola was would maybe take up a, a big chunk of an article, uh, much less sort of uh, laying out, here's the CIA's, you know, names and dates and places activities, which again, because of the sort of crowdsourced nature of the magazine, a lot of people didn't have, but they said, given all of these things that I know about, you know, Ghana or wherever, I'll bet this is where the CIA is sticking its oar in. Now, 73 is just sort of at the end of the period uh, that fall of Delta Green covers. Because 1973, as well known, is the end of the 60s. Right. And also the end of active American military involvement in, v- in Vietnam. Yes. By and, uh, no coincidence whatsoever, because that's how you can tell the 70s start. Yeah. It's actually the end of the second 60s. But right. The high but 60s. Let's not get into that. Yes. Um, and so uh, the first issue, when you uh, pull it up, is uh, is from seventy three and uh, right there on the cover there's Patty Hearst, uh, which took me hurtling back in time because that was the first news story uh, as a kid that I became really aware of, and uh, there is for example a uh, CIA critique editorial about The Exorcist, which seems uh, promising for our purposes. So they point <laughs> out that uh, uh, William Blatty had CIA experience, and it encourages you from a hard left perspective to look at The Exorcist as another demonstration of uh, CIA mind control techniques. So right there, that suggests a fall of Delta Green scenario. And a comforting big church attitude towards what goes into the magazine. Yeah. And uh, there's another one about uh, uh, the headline uh, refers to uh, magic and behavioral control. Uh, Unfortunately, the rest of the article is just about behavioral control. So Mm -hmm. uh, one has to infer the magic for uh, Cthulhu purposes. And and say who even uh, at uh, Counter Spy could censor a uh, letter from the LEAA newsletter about magic and take it out. Yes. So uh, when you look at Counter Spy, the most obvious thing that it suggests is not a campaign where you are playing Delta Green agents, but rather that you were playing the radical infiltrators or, or counter spies who want to unravel the Delta Green conspiracy, which is, of course, beyond the remit of the main game. How would you go about uh, using some of this material as, as a resource? Because the people being written about in this, uh, with all of the partial truths and inferences 
are actually in a, a standard fall of Delta Green campaign. They're the player characters. Yeah, they're the right? good you guys. You don't want to wind up right. in Counter Spy. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if a Delta Green op has shown up in Counter Spy, then uh, someone's uh, uh, handler is going to be very mad at them. Their case officer is going to have uh, harsh clucking words for them. Uh, one of the things that you can use Counter Spy as is a just sort of a scenario generator. If you pull it up and you say, "Well, here's what's happening in the '70s." What in the sixties, uh, caused this blowback or caused this, this, uh, this downstream? Uh, some of the articles are about the, the sort of the research in the historical past. So you don't have, um, uh, you can, you can use these as sort of first source things for something that was going on in the sixties. I like the idea though of it being a sort of a knight's pink agents game where you are, um, hard left or a uh, new left guys who are investigating uh, the government chicanery and stumble on this weird, uh, government program that everyone says is over, uh, even if you can find someone who knows about it at all. And then you start getting men in black show up, which is actually either, uh, you think it's, you know, normal men in black. We know maybe is it Delta green or maybe is it majestic? It's sort of an interesting meta campaign. Um, doing it in the seventies, uh, lets you use all the material basically straight up without trying to sort of, take it and refract it back um, a year, or you can use it as the primary document of a 70s Delta Green campaign that is the first era of the cowboy uh, conspiracy when Delta Green has been formally disbanded, and they've run a couple of ops in the in the years since, and now as Counterspy is, is heating up and, and people are, are beginning to uncover things in the 70s, your Delta Green guys are like, what if the end with the church uh, committee revelations coming up in a couple of years or happening even now during the game, you're like, what if Delta green gets revealed? Do we have to go in and, pre- and preserve the Delta green family jewels uh, from Richard Helms at CIA? What if he gives us up the way that he gave up um, uh, uh, other CIA activities to cover up MK ultra. And, and that's sort of a uh, question. And you can be saying, Maybe what we need to do is get ammo on Richard Helms so that we can make sure he keeps Delta Green covered up. And so you are counter spy, but you are counter spy in the same way that the CIA started all manner of leftist publications and investigative newspapers back in the day. You're Delta Green trying to get counter spy to do your bidding and you're trying to maneuver them. And this is a long form operation to get enough dirt on the CIA so that Richard Helms doesn't unveil uh, the, the truth about Delta green to placate an angry Congress. Right. And also it's a, it's a veil out organ so that, uh, you know, it's not a coincidence that the, uh, a reference to behavioral modification in this uh, particular medical association, you read it and it sounds ominous, but it doesn't really say anything because of course, you, the agents who infiltrated that organization and found that it was uh, full of me go, uh, you didn't write that in Counter Spy. You're promulgating, you know, you're getting conspiracy theorists to uh, propagate your cover up because uh, who else would seem more credible as uh, creating a cover story for you than your uh, group of uh, uh, anti CIA activists so that you could uh, look at. Uh, these articles and go, okay, well, what is this article covering up? Let's backwards reason to what the scenario was. And then at the end, you can present the players with that clip of the article as the handout of, and of course, this is what you submit to Counterspy magazine and see published 
and uh and there you go and you've uh successfully kept the uh innocent uh, 70s minds of uh, Americans and people all around the world uh, safe uh, once again from the infiltration of uh, Cthulhu and pals. There's also just sort of this sense of the time that uh, although, uh, you know, we have conspiracy theorists now and we have, uh, you know, it's not like there uh, there are no leftists left in America, but uh, <laughs> here's an, an ability to see the tone of the uh, the writing and the mood in a way that, you know, it's not uh, quite the same these days. And so it's a really great way of, you know, capturing that voice. And uh, you could easily use that voice uh, once you channel it a little uh, into something where you're creating a, uh, a handout. You know, Counter Spy Magazine shows up at the door of the Delta Green agents and, you know, they're checking it to make sure that, oh boy, I sure hope this stuff we did in Saigon isn't in this issue. And then you see, oh, here's something going on in Angola. And the writer doesn't know what's going on in Angola because they're uh, filtered uh, through their uh, safely mundane perspective. But you can see, oh, obviously, you know, here's where the ape men have uh, have been at work. And it wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't the uh, the Cubans who, who ambushed these people here. It was the, the, the ape guys. And we need to get that um, microfilm back from them. And, you know, here they are. They popped up again. Let's go. So were there any particular uh, things that jumped out to you as obvious uh, sort of scenario hooks? I mean, some of it is, uh, is like, for example, in this first issue, again, there is the, uh, a lengthy analysis of the burgled FBI memos that, bl- that sort of revealed the existence of COINTELPRO. So if you didn't want to read, uh, uh, the book, The Burglary, you could read this article and get yourself a first, a quick, uh, education on the topic. If you just pull up a random issue, like uh, volume four, number three from summer 1980, uh, you have a, a, a lot of them are just sort of country studies. They're, they're not even so much, uh, the, the scenario as they are the part of the front of the scenario that says, here's what's going on. Uh, and if you've got, already got a great idea for something to do on an air base in Turkey or in Thailand, this will give you some, some nice data. Uh, every so often, one of them will, lay out some sort of chicanery that you can sort of point your finger to and say, yes, uh, that is a mythos. Or you can certainly say, given that this is going on and that we have all these bases in Turkey doing all these things, can I use some of this detail to talk about um, uh, something else? And instead of getting a uh, necessarily a scenario hook, you're getting the verisimilitude and the flavor. So, uh, there is a discuss, a discussion of the NATO air defense ground environment stations of which there are some in Turkey and they're called the NAJ stations. Um, it talks about, uh, that their job is to, um, do, um, uh, uh, ground based radar detection of aircraft. And it mentions just as a throwaway that the NAJ system was finished in 1973. Uh, and that the NAJ system was obsolete even then. So why would you build a ground radar station that can't defend against a missile, can't detect low-flying aircraft, and um, uh, would be gone in the immediate in the, in the first uh, strike of a war between America or between Soviet Union and say Turkey? Uh, the article suggests that the NAJ is used as a AWACS sort of a thing, an air traffic control system and monitor for detecting planes on the ground, which seems like a stretch even for these guys. But you might think, 
All right, what do we know that comes in at a certain, that, that flies, that isn't likely to attack a radar station, and that you still need to detect even if it's not a Soviet missile? Um, oh, that sounds very much like MIGO. Is the NAJ program itself part of uh, a Majestic program that then gets canceled in 1973 as Majestic gets less and less interested in defense against Migo, but maybe there's some old NAJ personnel or maybe there's some old NAJ stations that have still got uh, uh, local commanders who, who don't know the war is the, the UFO war is over and are still uh, keeping uh, the skies lit up looking for Migo all the time. Maybe you can talk to them. Maybe that acts as a cell. This is not so much a story element in the sense of it doesn't give you a in 1973, there was this UFO as it is a sort of a backdrop that, that you can use. And that's what these right. are good it's for. It's the realistic thing to which you then bolt the Eldritch thing. Right, exactly. And, and that, and that's the sort of thing that is the kind of detail that, um, you know, nowadays we, we use Wikipedia, but if you're setting your game in the high sixties or in the seventies proper, then this is the sort of detail that you don't have to worry that some well-meaning editor has come in and added information that's not available at the time, which was always, it's always the bugaboo of doing a historical game or research for a historical game because you'll want to drop in a reference to something and only later will you discover that that was the thing that was discovered after the historical era and has been put into that article because it was maybe happening then, but no one at the time knew. Uh, and that's, uh, where this kind of thing is good because if you're, uh, I'm sure that there's well, there's way more known about, uh, the Argentinian, uh, disappearances era than is in this article, the CIA's chamber of commerce in Argentina. And certainly you might, if you're doing a game set in Argentina and trying to figure out, is there an Argentinian Delta green that is killing people under cover of the disappearances? Is there an Argentinian majestic that's uh, disappearing people for its own work? Or are the, is someone else using the disappearances to cover up a, a series of, of abductions for whatever reason you may want to go to a modern day article about the uh, disappearances to know uh, some of the hidden background details. But in terms of what are your characters going to know? This, uh, counterspy article is gonna, is gonna give you the, the deets. And finally, what you can do as an antagonist reaction is, you know, that your, all of your documents in your hotel room get, uh, pilfered and, uh, you think that, uh, oh no, it's, uh, is it a, a member of uh, another rival American agency? No, we rule that out as a member of another, uh, nation states intelligence agency. No, no, it's not that. Oh no, it's, uh, somebody writing an article for counterspy. And, oh, look, they've got our photo stats of the Necronomicon. We'd better make sure they don't print those in the next scene. And so you can have a, you know, hunt the, the Necronomicon scenario, you know, a classic of the genre with uh, this uh, specific uh, era and the specific uh, intelligence uh, bent of uh, Fall of Delta Green. Uh, well, on that note, I think it's time for us uh, to get out of here before our documents get burgled. So we're going to uh, head out of this hut and see what other hut lies on the horizon.
In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green, available for pre-order now in the Pelgrain Press store. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? It seems like we've only just left the cinema hut before once more we're drawn in by the smell of popcorn, the whir of the projector, and the promise of a double feature uh, as we settle into our middle seats here in the cinema hut. We return to a question posed uh, in a previous segment, to talk about heist and conman films 101. Last time, we talked about heist films. We have returned, settled back in, to do the conman film 101. And if you remember our heist film segment, you remember that this was not so much Robin and Ken try and stump each other. This was Robin and Ken nod vigorously as each other uh, described the film they'd already written down. Uh, right. That was on heist movies, which have a long and beautiful tradition. Con men movies, if anything, even more uh, of a short list, just of movies that even fit the description, uh, much less movies that are worth watching that fit the description. Right. And and, and some might say that our uh, backer, Chris Canfield, asked a two-part question. Some might say that we talked too long yeah. in the previous segment. But here we are with the, with the con man films. And... Uh, and I've cleverly arranged this so that you're throwing a segment. We needed to talk that long to get everyone confident that they could trust us. Yes. Right. So that so that you're throwing a segment so that I can do the obvious, the king of all con man films. There's only one place to start, 1973. That's George Roy Hill's The Sting with Newman and Redford, a 1930s uh, con man uh, movie with uh, uh, Scott Joplin music reconfigured by Marvin Hamlish as the score, extremely memorable, caused uh, Scott... Joplin revival, and it recounts several classic uh, long con stings uh, from the classic era of the con man uh, with uh, Robert Shaw as a great antagonist and is uh, a great hearkening back in the 70s to the uh, Hollywood studio tradition of the 30s and 40s. So uh, if you're going to start with con man movies, you got to start there. Absolutely. Um, and since you have done the uh, one obvious one, I shall take the other obvious one, which is uh, David Mamet's uh, House of Games, which is also a con man movie in which uh, Lindsay Krause is a psychiatrist who catches a con man in the act and then 
bullies him, or so she imagines, into revealing to her the world of the con game. And, of course, this being a mammoth film and this being a con man film, nothing is that simple and more goes on than meets the eye. But what also goes on is that Mamet is just showing off dialogue. Joe Mantegna is showing off acting chops. And everyone is showing off the inner workings of uh, various long and short cons and attempting to sort of get into the psychology of uh, the con game. And I think at this point, I would like to say, to posit, that to be a con man film, a movie must star a con man, there must be a con man in it, and also, the con man must be doing a con. Uh, many films do not meet both of those, you would seem, not particularly restrictive criteria. Many of the films that don't meet it are going to be in this list. I'm just telling you, I know that we are uh, going to be uh, allowing some uh, some weird sheep into our fold. Trust us, it's either uh, part of the con or there just aren't enough con man films to do it uh, straight straight up, but we do know the difference. So, Robin, right. do you want and, to? And one of the things is that it's it's difficult to write a great long con story. It is um, yes. the, uh, because part of the implication of that, just as in the heist, you often see as in the Ocean's movie, you see the heist seem to go wrong, and then it goes right, and you find out what's really going on. That uh, in both the Sting and in House of Gains, you think one thing has happened because you. The viewer are also being conned by the con man, who in House of Games also includes Ricky Jay, who we've talked about as an author of books that appear on Ken's bookshelf before. And here we see him uh, as an actor who has that uh, splendid, um, uh, low-key uh, delivery that works so well with mammoth dialogue and also uh, that uh, his sort of grizzled uh, countenance really fits in that world. Uh, mammoth made another... Uh, not nearly quite as classic, but still worth seeing a con movie called The Spanish Prisoner, which is actually named after a famous uh, con routine. Yes. And that has Campbell Scott and uh, Steve Martin in it. Yeah. And also Campbell Scott, who is uh, one of those guys who you always thought was going to be bigger than he got to be big, but he was really good. And in something like The Spanish Prisoner, you sort of get an idea of why. So uh, we're already starting to run out of <laughs> films that fit this classic criteria. Uh, but there are lots of films about con artists, uh, where we discover what happens, uh, not so much in the real world of the elegant long con as in, uh, what happens to you if you're a lifelong criminal and eventually your luck runs out. And a great example of that is The Grifters from 1991 uh, by Stephen Frears. Uh, John Cusack, uh, plays an already, uh, spiraling down, uh, a low rent con man and uh Angelica Houston is his mom and she's also criminal and they have a, a fraught relationship and she has a fraught relationship with the uh, crime boss who sort of has a control over all of them that had a, a breakout performance uh, by Annette Benning and is a, a really great uh example of the the neo noir uh, and it's uh, based on a Jim Thompson novel uh, yes. Jim Thompson uh, there's a whole, uh, basically all of his uh, novels got turned into films uh, around that time. And uh, a lot of them are really good. And uh, The Grifters is the one that, oddly enough, is about grifters and has a great yes. Elmer Bernstein score. Uh, he, he reprising uh, his style. He was a classic studio uh, era composer who uh, worked uh, into the 90s. And so uh, uh, he sort of had a later career. Uh, resurgence uh, doing uh, comedy scores, but this is sort of a hearkening back 
to uh, walk on the wild side in his uh, 50s uh, sort of noirish story. Yes, the, um, uh, the Grifters, uh, which I liked when I saw it, but haven't thought an awful lot about since, which may be about more about me than it is about, uh, certainly Annette Benning was excellent in it. Uh, one of course remembers the warning, uh, put on it by a beloved, uh, television character, Abed Nadir, who says, who describes it as the grifters featuring Angelica Houston, Annette Benning, and practically no grifting. So be aware <laughs> of that. Um, I will add one more classic, uh, con man film, uh, that, that meets our criteria and is actually, uh, really good as long as you don't study the plot obsessively, which might, you might say, well, that makes it fatally flawed as a con man film. It's like, eh, these things happen. Nine Queens by the, uh, director Fabian Belinsky, uh, released in 2000. Uh, Belinsky taken from us sadly far too soon. Um, he was, uh, just on fire to make these great sort of weird subcultural feature films. Uh, and then he, he died. Uh, but, uh, uh, Nine Queens is his con man movie and it's, uh, uh, very terrific. Uh, when you're watching it, uh, the performance, the main performance by, um, I think his name is Gaston Pauls, the, uh, uh, the, the sort of the main character is really great. And Ricardo Darin, who was a Argentinian sort of a, a boy, uh, uh, star, a, a teen idol, a matinee guy. Uh, he gives a really great performance too. So it's, it's just got some great performances by actors you don't already have a bunch of connections, uh, with. And it's, uh, very, very fast paced. It's got a little of the sort of, um, Guy Ritchie, uh, quality to it because it came out, like I say, in 2000. So it's in that early Guy Ritchie era when people were messing around with timing and editing because that television generation has grown up and is now directing films. If you can find a copy, if you track down a copy, I recommend Nine Queens. Yeah. I remember that not quite sticking the landing somehow, but I have not revisited that. Yeah. Um, so another big, uh, stream of the con man film is the comic con man film. And uh, so this brings us to uh, an even older classic film uh, in the romantic comedy con man film in which the two leads are uh, con artists and they are uh, conning uh, one another and, of course, ultimately themselves because the greatest con is that they don't really believe that they're in love with each other. And, of course, they are because this is Ernst Lubitsch's 1932 film Trouble in Paradise, uh, which is a classic of the, uh, the, uh, the Lubitsch touch was the famous word that all of the other envious, uh, screenwriters used to, uh, refer to, uh, his, uh, mixture of sort of, uh, elegance and comedy. And it's, uh, seldom, uh, a scene in any, uh, degree as it is in, uh, Trouble in Paradise. It has, uh, uh, Kay Francis in it. Uh, Miriam Hopkins, who's usually something of a pill. She's usually somewhat hard to take, but she's actually really great and funny in this. And uh, Herbert Marshall, who is sort of George Sanders before George Sanders was George <laughs> Sanders, uh, is the other uh, jewel thief. So the uh, if you see something like Dirty Rotten Scandrels, the tropes that it is drawing on are from Trouble in Paradise uh, and a, uh, should be a cornerstone of any uh, con man collection or any romantic comedy collection. Um, now I'm going to allow you then to do the other, uh, immortal classic of con manning because I want to talk about my version of the grifters, which is to say a movie about what happens to you if you've lived your whole life as a con man and now there's nothing left. And that means that I'm talking about Jules Dassin's 
amazing movie, Night and the City, starring Richard Widmark, made in 1950, based on the Gerald Kirsch novel, which is also well worth reading, but has sort of a cousinly relationship to this film, as do so many things, um, uh, novels and films. But in this particular case, the film is almost as good as the novel is, and in its own uh, uh, noir register, it is a noir in which the cynicism and the bitterness are so deep that uh, it's almost kind of a relief that there's wrestling that happens in the film. <laughs> because when people are merely trying to kill each other in a, in a wrestling ring, you don't have a moment of existential dread the way that you do in every other minute of the film. It was filmed in post-war London, uh, and post-war London does not look an appreciable amount better in this film than post-war Vienna does in The Third Man. Both cities have been very badly beaten up and are coming out the other side probably with a great deal of, of permanent damage to them. Certainly, the way that Dasson frames the world of London, everyone is on the make, everyone is contemptible, everyone is a grifter on some level, and the big uh, uh, grift, which is about Richard Widmark attempting to start a um, uh, a wrestling uh, business that is not beholden to the current wrestling mob, uh, of course ends in disaster, because... Not just because he is um, uh, involved in uh, something with the mob, but also because he is a person who everyone has no reason to trust. And guess what? That comes back to uh, bite him uh, in the film. It's it's a terrific movie. It is about a milieu of cons. It is about the main character is a hustler, but it is not technically a con man movie in that it is not about a con. It is about a criminal attempt uh, to get something you don't deserve by fooling people, but it's not technically the classic long con as we are uh, given to understand it. Robin? Yeah, it's one of the uh, entries in the uh, really bad night subgenre. <laughs> also true, yes. So the next one I'm going to mention is uh, The Handmaiden, uh, the most recent film by Park Chan-wook from 2016, uh, which uh, isn't even immediately obvious that it's a <laughs> long con movie, even though it starts off introducing you to a bunch of con artists. That's uh, how it sort of slips in and out of uh, different uh, genres. It seems like a wartime uh, resistance espionage movie for a little while, and then it sort of seems like a, uh, a domestic uh, gothic drama, and then uh, a long con, which I I'm not 100% sure, but I think is not actually in the original Sarah Waters novel that it was uh, based on. Uh, uh, takes the film in a, a, a different direction, and uh, it's uh, a, a a weird, mesmerizing uh, film that doesn't have the usual mood that you associate uh, with a con artist film. It, it has about three moods, and none of them are uh, a, a con man sort of mood, although because so much of it is about Foolishly giving your loyalty to somebody, I guess, would be a, a, a way to put the, the the theme. There is a level on which it's nothing but con man movie. But again, yes, the there is a a, a a con being performed. Yes, the one of the characters could be described as a con artist. But is it a con man movie? Who can say? But it is certainly a great movie. And in the sort of mindset of the con, it is another great. Uh, film because again park chan wook so who's not gonna love him on the same level where the main characters are con people and there is a con being run but is it a con man movie i would put american hustle uh from 2013 directed by david o russell uh people perhaps remember it most for the breakout uh not even so much the breakout but the 
always the again stellar performance by Jennifer Lawrence, but I would argue that uh, it's actually a pretty good uh, Christian Bale part. And Amy Adams is, as always, kind of the the secret weapon in a movie like this, where you expect that uh, she's good, but then you realize, oh no, she's a lot better than you thought she was. She she turns out to be one of the uh, real driving uh, uh powerhouses acting wise in the film, and then the whole bit. Uh, talk about the seventies. This is the seventies, uh, brought back, uh, to our screens in all its wide lapel glory, um, and is about a sting run by the FBI, which is also a con. And how those two things overlap is, I guess, the big con manny question of the film, right? Yeah. And it's definitely a film where you leave humming the costumes. Yes. So my list is done because I've been busy draining your bank account. Uh, do you have any others you want to mention before we uh, sneak out of this segment? I mean, you you alluded to Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which is a froth of a movie, but I think is great fun for sort of a lost Michael Caine performance as a guy who's just annoyed for the whole movie but can't do it. I mean, it's 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 very much as you say a callback to the '30s screwball comedies uh, type era. Um, and I just, I just really loved, uh, Michael Caine's performance. I also want to mention, um, in, uh, another exception to our rule, uh, in which it's sort of the opposite of Night in the City in that it's a great movie and the main character is doing a con, but Jackie Brown, the titular Jackie Brown is not a con woman. She's just a stewardess who is somewhat smarter than the rest of the room, but not enough. It's a Quentin Tarantino, a movie based on an Elmore Leonard novel and it is, I, in, in a certain mood and on a certain day, I will argue that it is the best Quentin Tarantino movie, even if it is not necessarily a paradigmatic con man film. I think it is the best, uh, Tarantino movie because his, uh, sort of cartoony impulses are, uh, at their most constrained. It's his most naturalistic film and right. one, uh, in which you most feel for the characters and believe them to be real people while still having all of those, uh, Tarantino gestures and then, uh, after that, he sort of went off uh, so far permanently into comic book land, which is uh, also interesting and perhaps the way he does it, not uh, something anybody else is doing. But I, I do miss the uh, soulfulness and, and humanity and lived-in sense of, uh, of Jackie Brown. Uh, well, on that note, I think it's time for us to fake our own deaths and uh, flee to another jurisdiction or perhaps the next segment. the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a meta 
metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Don't be a mark. Join such patron backers as... Jeff Cars, J.F. Paradis. Joshua Brumley. Michael Bowman. And Morgan Ellis. Welcome once again to another segment of Ken and or Robin Talks to Someone Else. And today, the someone else, perhaps the someone else of today, but certainly of this segment, is Alex Roberts, a beloved podcaster of the Backstory Podcast and game designer at least twice now, and apparently uh, she will kill again. Alex, uh, <laughs> tell us about any of those things. Uh, let's see. I mean, we should talk about Starcrossed, the two-player game of Forbidden Love. That is on yes, Kickstarter yes, right should. now, I assume. Right now. Right now? Okay. And cool. tell us uh, why it is superior to the other Jenga-based role-playing game, uh, Dread. It is not. It is. <laughs> How dare you? I'm sorry you? you're wrong. How dare you? I'm sorry, Alex. You are incorrect. It is. <laughs> I love Dread, and this started out as, like, a playset for Dread, mm-hmm. uh, and then it just turns out that it wouldn't work that way, and so I had to steal from so many other games in order to make it work. Right. Um, and so, people who say that it is a cheap ripoff of Dread... Are wrong. They're totally wrong. It's a cheap ripoff of Hot Guys Making Out, probably? Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably, that's probably closer right. to it. Okay. Um, but anyway, it's been my life's work for the past, like, three years, and what I love is that Playtesting it blows my mind every single time because I I have not seen a single repeat of a pairing. So, like, in the game, you have to decide what has brought your characters together and what is keeping them apart. Right. Right? Because it's all about people who are really, really into each other, but, but they can't. really, really just say shouldn't mm-hmm. or they can't, or they mustn't or they just physically can't or they just can't conceive of how that relationship would even work. So it could it, it could be a social barrier. Your uh, Montagues and Capulets. It could be mm-hmm. a um, uh, a distance barrier, like you're on Pluto and your Inamorata <laughs> is on Earth, or it could be any of another of conceptual interpositions. It, so I I played a wonderful game where uh, have you ever seen Moon, where there's like one guy mm-hmm. on a yeah. on a lunar space station and he just has the AI to keep him company. So it was like that, um, but the person fell in love with the AI and they really, really cared for each other a lot. And it was a complex relationship. Uh, and they, it was really beautiful, but also they, it wasn't just a matter of you're not supposed to do this. It was like, I don't know what to do with this. That's how you could physically make yeah. that work. And also I got to go back to earth once my shift is over. Right. Yeah. I literally can't take you with me. You're a space station. And you could be, you know, downloaded or uh, upgraded by the next guy. And exactly. either you won't be there, which would be awful. Yeah. Or you'd be up there with a different astronaut. And well, now how am I going to deal with that? Well, what we found out is actually that they get wiped between uh, shifts. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, cause they're specifically adapted. Oh, there was this whole revelation about how 
they're not just there to upkeep the the station. They're also there to like monitor the psychological effects of being completely alone on like this right. lunar thing and make sure that the person is like okay and doesn't mm-hmm. go nuts. Um, and so in order to do that, they have to adapt to each new person. Now, something like that, did that emerge in play as a result of story or is that a thing that's the person playing the AI wrote down oh, as no. a reveal? You, how, does, you, how, does, how does that sort of, because the Jenga, I assume, it uses Jenga for people who have just tuned in, literally just <laughs> tuned in. Uh, Jenga indicates when the relationship fa- falls apart or becomes it's, it's, impossibly It's physical. when you act on your feelings. Right. So acting on your feelings could be so many different things, right? You could just could, declare your love would be a thing. Maybe. Exactly. You could, it, it's just, it's an action that makes your feelings known in a way that you can't take back. Right. You know? Um, and so, so that, in theory, you could be playing Starcross between two people who are friends with benefits and yes. they're always getting it on. Yeah. And it's the act of actually doing something caring it makes the yes. powerful. Oh, my dream, my dream is to have someone play, uh, like adult performers who are doing like a film together, mm-hmm. right? But they, it's strictly professional. Right. Or there's something completely unrelated to their job that keeps them apart. They just have stuff going on, right? right. Life is life. Mm-hmm. And so they could be having sex in every single scene, but acting on their feelings is completely different. So back around to the question of how the characters either are revealed or change right. in play. Is there, is it just you uh, answer, feeding the drama or what's the, what's the mechanism there? You, you answer very few questions at the beginning of the game. Only the most essential questions, which are again, why are you together? Why are you not together together? And why are you so into each other? Mm-hmm. And so there's a semi collaborative like character making process, um, where you set out like, who they are and what's important to them and what is so darn attractive about them. Uh, and then you just do a series of, um, like you take turns and you don't pull on every single turn. Sometimes you're just describing things, offering a line of dialogue, doing a small additions to the story. But sometimes you do something that increases the the intimacy between the two people. And again, not necessarily physical intimacy, but those two moves are revealing something personal about yourself or touching the other person. Mm-hmm. And again, how that gets interpreted yeah. is really interesting right. depending on who your characters are. But those two things, you have to really say something about your character and what's happening. And so those things just kind of flow out of people. And in the magic that is role-playing, People make connections between really, really small pieces of fictional information and sew them together into something that is a coherent story. Right. The sort of, um, not even emergent story, but sort of emergent world. Oh that yeah. You, that you build. Yeah. I mean, right. you're, the world forms around the relationship, mm-hmm. right? The relationship like is like all good love stories. <laughs> exactly. And you, in, you, the whole point of the world is just to be a thing that keeps you apart. Yes. That's right. Kids, Romeo and Juliet, a rotten setting book because it didn't explain what the wandering monster table was in Verona. <laughs> Just how love works. Um, talking about love working in games, mm. obviously people have been fictively getting it on in games since there were games. Yeah, totally. And uh, uh, vampire LARPs are only some of the <laughs> loviest of LARPs and, yeah, yeah. and a zillion LARPs involving mm-hmm. romance. But as far as tabletop romance games... There's Starcross, there's Emily's trilogy. Yeah. And is that 
pretty much it. There's maybe a little bit things you can sort of incorporate without being strange into some other games. There's a few other games. Um, you know, Kagamatsu, uh, was, is a huge influence on me. Um, uh, Hot Guys Making Out, Ben mm-hmm. Lemon's game, uh, big influence for sure. So there are games that are specifically based on it. Um, Kira McGron is doing some really cool work on this right now. She just released a game called A Cozy Den, which is about uh, lesbian snakes, like a den of them, and they are, right. there's lots of different kinds of intimacy represented there. And uh, Ron Edwards has a sort of a... a Slay With Me. Slay With Me, sort yeah. of a lost lord. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Northwest Smith role-playing game is well, and in, And in Sorcerer, too, right? right there's yeah. there's um, stuff around that. Mm-hmm. And I think it says a lot that even in games where the only actual, you know, really essential rules have to do with how effectively you can hurt people, players still want to love each other. Well, it's it's almost as though it is literally the oldest story in the world. Right? And so the the, the, the space has been there forever in stories. It's been mm. going on in games. We're gradually beginning to see... <laughs> And this has always struck me as odd. This is as though mm. we didn't get our first on-screen kiss until 50 <laughs> years into film. Well, and people were like, oh, kissing. Yeah, that's awesome. We should film more of that. I really like that. Yeah, yeah. that's terrific. That that has some narrative punch to it. Well, what's what's interesting is that I am, I am positive that, you know, from very, very early games, there were romantic stories that people wanted to include in some way and did their best mm-hmm. to do. But... We, I think the fear is actually in how to mechanize something like that. Right. Either because we consider it like, like, you know, how can you, how can you, um, do something like that to love? Or, or, you know, if, if the only systems that you're familiar with are about doing violence, trying to adapt that, yeah. uh, to how people love each other or, or even fuck each other, it's really messed up and I don't recommend it. And even the structure of still so many games, uh, and this is a fine way to make a game, but that has to do with wanting something, like, you know, having a goal, having a skill to accomplish that goal, and then rolling to see your sort of likelihood of attaining that thing, that's a bad structure to put on top of a of an intimate relationship. And I don't want that to happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so it takes the development of other kinds of systems in order to sort of spark the idea that like, okay, we can represent how a relationship develops, we can represent how a story develops. And then I think you can talk about trying to mechanize and by mechanize I just mean represent in a, yeah, in a game right. system, um, intimacy. Yeah. And is there another element of it that is social in the sense that it's the players? have to sort of buy in in a way. Yeah. Because first of all, you're, you're running the risk of losing control of your character, which no one likes to do. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, us old school deli gamers <laughs> never liked it. And then also it's about things that are not as clear cut, haha, as stabbing orcs. And both of those things involve, you know, fuzziness and surrender, which another great title. If you're out there making a role playing game right now about love, <laughs> let me suggest that. But in the same way that Call of Cthulhu creates a buy in where when a player says, I'm playing Call of Cthulhu, they're willingly allowing their character, uh, agency to be taken away. To go mad. Because they're like, oh yeah, you can control my character's sanity. That makes sense. Yeah. Is it just a matter of presenting that as an initial buy in that maybe that's the thing and you could in theory have uh, any uh, any number of mechanics, as you say, to solve the problem. But the question is, when the player opens the book or picks it up, mm-hmm. do they expect a lot of you know kissing in the game, or do they expect 
zero to no kissing. Well, and so so definitely setting expectations is important right. because if I roll up to a game where I am not interested in romantic stuff and a GM or another player is constantly trying to insert it, that sucks really bad and you got to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, putting things up front always important. Right. But there's also uh, that element of control when it comes to, like, Lovecraftian games in general. Um, you really do sign up to to lose control of your character a bit, and that's part of what might happen. And maybe you can have the fun interplay of trying to maintain control, knowing that it may be taken away. Right. But, like, that's falling in love, too. And that, yeah, that's half of all great love stories. It's right. It's where it's... you are like, no, I know that this is a terrible idea. I can't and I'm doing it possibly anyway. <laughs> be into uh, a Capulet or whatever. Exactly, right? right? And and so there's a, there's a slight losing control of, of your feelings, if not your actions, right? Mm. Maybe you want to represent... Um, Still being in control of your actions, but, but not of your heart. And that's, that's scary for people. Yeah. Like that's scary to think of and to, to role play that. And that may be why the passions mechanic never really got out of Pendragon and <laughs> everyone just sort of left it there because it was, as you say, very scary to yeah. have, you know, something inside you wanting to do things that you don't want to do, which is literally human life. Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. And I think anytime that you want to make a system about what love is and, and, and what sex is and what intimacy is and what relation, how relationships work. That means you have to make a statement about how those things work. Mm -hmm. And thinking about that is hard for people. We don't have a lot of models for thinking about how that works. Um, it's, I, well, we don't in gameplay. I mean, again, we have literally all of human literature and experience. Well, but those things don't, like, a love story is really different from human mm, life. Right. Right? And I don't know, there's something different about trying to really break something down and say, how does this, how does this work? Right. Right? And not even just how do love stories work, but like, how does love work? It's on a, on a systemic process yeah. level. Yeah, exactly. Not even on a, um, uh, how does love work? But as a, <laughs> you know, what are the stages of love? Yeah. Or or, and that's why, that's why, um, Starcrossed isn't about just falling in love. It's about a very, very specific kind of relationship mm -hmm. that, you know, the, the forbidden love thing. And I think that's important too. Like I, I would, I don't know how to make a system that's just the romance system because there's so many different right. kinds of relationships. Yeah. And, and, uh, if I recall correctly, there was, starting in about the 17th century, there was a bunch of, uh, of designs that, uh, once fortification became a thing, mm. and people would, would design out Vauban style fortifications, they would also draw like a heart shaped fort and have all of the approaches that you could use to attack. Oh my god. That fort. And oh these my are god. very, very common genre of engravings. That exist, uh, you know, again, going back to the beginning of fortification <laughs> science. So for all you war gamers out there who have been feeling left out, you can, this is, this is how you can tactically mount, uh, oh my God. A, a, a love game. Oh my God. And still get to roll to hit. Wow. That is so. That's a masculine design. Yeah. You know, well. sometimes I talk about Starcross as a feminine design. And it's hard to explain why. It's a masculine design. And it's not hard to explain why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Because it's about cannons, people. <laughs> Go look that up. If it's still, if it still is you. I, I don't know if that's the most uh, terrible thing I've ever heard, or actually the sweetest. Just thinking of these poor boys being like, "Well, I understand how this thing works, so maybe, maybe I can understand love." All seventeenth-century well, people. Oh, France. <laughs> oh, the French. Well, someday they will understand love as we do. <laughs> yeah, really catch up. So. uh People should tune into Backstory for more of Alex talking to people, for more of us talking to people. Uh, keep listening on the other side of the ad. Starcrossed is at your local Kickstarter, even as we speak. Um, Alex, it was lovely of you to come down to Chicago, and even lovelier of you to come on Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Well, thank you so much. It's really nice, nice of you to have me on. <laughs> When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera. Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. Normally, we would go up the cobweb stairs as they creak and they creep. Normally, we would be passing the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky. Normally, we'd be knocking on the Edwardian uh, frosted glass door of the consulting occultist. But today, we're underneath some palm trees, baby, taking a meeting, because we are out in Los Angeles, where the consulting occultist has left a obscure set of parageographical pointers buried deep within the Los Angeles landscape, aiming us, as all readers of Cthulhu Confidential know, towards the center of Los Angeles's parageography, the Art Deco LA Times building. And the consulting occultist perhaps, perhaps is obliquely posing to us the question, what's up with the LA Times leaving the LA Times building? Does that mean there has been a shift in the, uh, uh, co- uh, the currents of covert power? Does it mean that there is an occult jiggery and or pokery going on? Or is it someone just doing a three card Monty on us and the LA Times building remains as mighty as it always was? Robin, what have you got for us? Uh, you've been looking into this. You've been cozying up to the powers that be. Uh, what's going on? Right. So it was just announced that, uh, the LA Times is going to be moving out of its iconic building and uh, it's moving to uh, 2300 East Imperial Highway. This is uh, not only a, a ripple in the geomantic power structure of Los Angeles, but also, I think, a, a parable uh, for uh, the travails of journalism in that uh, the L.A. Times has been through a number of owners recently, and it's uh, been sold off by the unfortunately named organization Tronk uh, to a new owner, 
uh, Dr. Patrick Soon Xian. And uh, unfortunately, sometime previously, and I was unable to pin down exactly when this happened, the ownership of the building itself has already been sold off a couple of times. Uh, but uh, let us go back in time very briefly to uh, 1935 when the building was initially constructed at the behest of its publisher, Harry Chandler. Now, uh, if you want the full scoop on uh, the magical truth behind the story of uh, Harry Chandler, uh, look up episode 244, where we go into that at length, but I thought we would revisit it now that it's in the news. So basically, uh, Chandler, uh, who was born in 1864, uh, died in 1944, was not just a newspaper tycoon. Uh, he was also a giant real estate uh, developer and owner. And at one point, he was the he owned more land in the United States than any one human being. He was the number one owner of stuff. And uh, we know that was the first and last time a, a real estate developer would rise to political power and uh, and cause trouble. <laughs> yeah. It's never happened before or since. Never happened before or since. Uh, uh, real estate developers are usually swell guys. So Chandler was uh, ran... Uh, the city without ever really uh, being obvious that he was running the city. He was your classic behind-the-scenes sort of white-shoe guy. He was uh, okay with the mob as long as they uh, cooperated and uh, held their proper uh, niche in the uh, economic power structure. He was uh, not fond of commies. He was fond of eugenics. And uh, he basically, uh, in one way or another, uh, reshaped the city. He sat on every important board in Los Angeles and the real estate projects that he involved himself with in one way or another included uh, the Los Angeles Coliseum, the Hollywood Bowl, the Ambassador Hotel, and uh, the property development uh, that the Hollywood sign was originally built to advertise. He was also uh, responsible for building L.A.'s Chinatown, which, of course, meant displacing the actual uh, a Chinese immigrant population and shoving them out of the way and building a sort of a tourist trappy looking version of an imagined Chinatown uh, using sets from uh, old uh, Hollywood movies from the good earth, uh, for example. And uh, he, uh, when he built uh, the LA times building in 1935, it is a, a majestic achievement in art deco architecture. And he took over the previous location of the original L.A. City Hall. So is there another way, Ken, that you could possibly do more to declare your uh, parageographical control over an area than basically to build your own giant tower on the original site of the first city hall? I, I think not. Well, maybe you're not going to be declaring your own uh, geographical control over the site. But I will tell you something that you can do if you're looking to build parageography and are connected to the Tribune. Uh, if you are Colonel McCormick, who was also a crazy newspaper guy with crazy beliefs, uh, you build the McCormick Tower, uh, the Tribune Tower in Chicago, and to it you bring rocks from every state in the Union, every American <laughs> territory, Omaha Beach, the uh, the Kremlin, the Great Pyramid. There's a moon rock in the damn wall. <laughs> Rocks from all over the world were taken, often by Tribune reporters who were ordered to do so on pain of immediate dismissal, from Angkor Wat, from St. Peter's Basilica, and carried back and embedded in the walls of the Tribune Tower. Tribune Tower also, of course, was owned by Tronk, which is Tribune online content, and once 
you've literally turned your name into something that would be rejected as implausible in a uh, CW superhero show. You know that uh, you are uh, dealing with nothing but bad people. Um, uh, and turns out that the Tribune Tower has also been sold and the Chicago Tribune has to get out of it. And so mm-hmm. what you think is a, is a, a local issue about the switch of power in LA turns out to be a bigger issue where the two great art deco keystones of American crazy people, journalism and paragiography are both being turned pretty much simultaneously. So stuff be happening, Robin stuff be happening. You'll be glad to know that the people who bought the LA uh, uh, tower, the LA uh, uh, times tower was a Canadian company called the Omni group that bought it in 2016 from it's actually Oni. It's O N N I, which is the founder's name backwards. All right. Oni um, backwards naming. Let's not, yeah, you know, let's, let's not lose sight of this yet another tree in our forest of significant elliptonic trees. But yeah, the Ani Group uh, buys it in 2016 from the Tribune. Uh, the Tribune Media Company had bought the LA Times uh, some time ago uh, because why run only one great newspaper into the ground? <laughs> yes, if your if your mission is perhaps to uh, topple the uh, not only the temporal but the uh, occult power of uh, uh, journalism in America, you know, go for a one-two. So the LA Times uh, still owns another building. Uh, they did not, uh, the new owner, uh, did not want to pay an additional million dollars, uh, a year or, or month, I forget which, uh, rent. And so they're moving out to another building, a very unprepossessing, uh, sort of, uh, uh, basic, uh, good old, uh, not a brutalist, but, uh, utilitarian box out at, uh, 2300 East Imperial Highway. And if you fire up your Google Maps, you find out that that is actually located in the place in Los Angeles where magic goes to die. <laughs> it is right next to the airport. It is across from the Lufthansa cargo shipping, uh, lot. And anyone who's ever been to LAX, uh, knows, uh, that if there's anywhere in the city where there is no geomantic power whatsoever, where there's the opposite of the Denver airport, we all know the Denver airport is, is rife with occult power. Well, LAX is the opposite of that, is, is, is a, a null battery of, uh, of souls and magical power, uh, that is, uh, obviously going to continue to drain, uh, the power, unfortunately, of, of journalism from, uh, the, the great journalists of, of the LA Times. So can, uh, I guess there must be some great conspiracy uh, at foot, or perhaps it's just the desire of real estate developers to uh, knock down everything, build in new uh, expensive condo towers, and of course, retail on the bottom. So the the LA Times building, which ironically was never declared a heritage site. (laughs) It's not a heritage site. And uh, I guess the original thinking was, I'm Harry Chandler. I don't... Well, first of all, it was, this building is new. It is not a heritage building. And then it must have been his heirs were, we're the Chandlers. By definition, our thing is heritage and we're going to own this forever. And oh no, somebody's bought it. And so they're, they're going to keep the main tower itself, but they're going to refurbish it extensively and they're going to knock down other buildings on the site and replace them, uh, with more, uh, you know, expensive housing and, uh, and retail in what is, um, happening certainly in Toronto and, and in Vancouver and presumably uh, in many other American cities as well as the uh, uh, cities all redensify in a very kind of anonymous kind of cookie cutter sort of fashion. Yeah. And the, and the sort of the quest for authenticity is what makes 
condos in things like the Tribune Tower or the LA Times building more valuable is because it turns out, uh, people would rather live in a really cool building with crenellations and, uh, and, and setbacks than in a crummy glass and steel tower. And if you can, uh, charge people a, a super premium, uh, they don't mind that their building was put up in the 1920s and maybe doesn't have all mod cons, uh, like windows that open. Um, the, uh, or rather has windows that open rather than the kind that don't. Uh, I do want to point out that the, uh, LA Times is not even going to be in LA anymore. They will be in the town of El Segundo, which literally means the second. So if it's like, <laughs> well, we were the, now we're the second, but that brings up another occult connection between, uh, them and Chicago because Chicago is famously the second city. So is moving the LA Times to the second or the city of the second, a, a mirroring effect. Again, we have our mirrors coming back from the Ani group. Uh, something definitely is happening here. Uh, El Segundo, of course, was, uh, famous only in the forties when, uh, the Douglas Aircraft Company, uh, built, um, uh, the Douglas Dauntless in, uh, El Segundo. Now it is, uh, still an aircraft plant. Uh, but it's built by Grumman and, uh, who cares? It's probably building drones. Right. It's no longer a dashing, exciting hub of aviation. It's as, as previously mentioned, one of the world's most dispiriting hubs <laughs> of aviation. Right. <laughs> you know, Howard Hughes, uh, owned uh, one of the aircraft, uh, uh, plants down there. So if you're looking for a possible, uh, gorilla occultist, uh, Howard Hughes often plays that role in pop culture. Maybe he's buried some sort of secret power in El Segundo that your, uh, characters who are crusading reporters for the LA Times and have not yet, um, uh, uh gone home to get real jobs are, uh, discover that, um, uh, there is a, uh, that there is yet one more card left to be played in this game of high stakes occult parageographical poker. Well, eventually, uh, I think we know that, uh, uh, reporters, of course, are gatherers of information. Who in the occult world gathers information? Well, wizards, of course. And so I think uh, we can hope that the uh, wizards will make a resurgence. They may have lost uh, these particular towers. They may have had their uh, business models uh, upended and their ability to uh, gather arcane secrets uh, disrupted. Uh, but uh, perhaps they'll, uh, they'll make a comeback, and soon uh, we will see other... Uh, edifices, uh, virtual, if not practical, uh, rising above the landscape to uh, uh, bring us back into a realm of uh, information and, and uh, knowledge and gnosis. But until then, uh, folks, you're going to have to rely on, on Ken and myself uh, to provide all the important information on News of the Day, such as the secrets behind the uh, moving of the L.A. Times staff. And on that note, uh, we're going to go off. We're going to uh, duck uh, some uh, evil forces of our own and, and bring back some more information for you the very next week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors! Atlas Games! Pelgrane Press! Aspagown! Arc Dream! Dork Tower! And Pro Fantasy Software! Music, as always, is by James Semple! Audio editing by Rob Borges! Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Enjoy the superior geomantic digs enjoyed by such Patreon backers as... Raphael Pabst! Jason Franzella! Jesse Lowe! Hoor's Blumentritt! And Wayne Peterson. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Aerodite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. The glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky is now a t-shirt. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff. <laughs>